Good morning. We're going to be turning in our Bibles to the book of Malachi. As you're turning there, I'll ask a couple questions. We'll have a, uh, as a bit of it, a little bit of a game with some prizes. So let's start with the kids first. Where, let's see, where's the kids question? Where is the book of Malachi found? Someone of the kids raise their hand and tell me. Christine? The Old Testament. You more, a little more specific? Near the end of the Old Testament. What do you guys say? Close enough? Close enough. Very good. All right. Well, we got prizes today. So I'm going to give you one of our prizes. And I have for you a stuffed animal. For a prize today, all right? Isn't that great? Here it is. Isn't that great? A stuffed animal. Good job. Did you love that right there? You're not allergic to dogs, are you? Okay, good. Okay. Now for you adults, I got a prize for you too. What does that name mean? Malachi mean? My messenger. Very good. Isla got that. I got a pair of sweats for you, Isla. Look at that. Congratulations. Excellent job. There you go. All right, good. Sorry, that's all the prizes I have for today. I know that really breaks your heart. But you can, you can probably be assured we'll be talking about those prizes later. Okay, let's talk about Malachi. Who is Malachi? He's my messenger. We don't know much about Malachi. We started this series in the Old Testament to go over character studies. And I, it hit me as I was studying for Malachi... To have a character study, you need to have a character who either says something for himself or does something so that you can look at his life. Well, sorry to tell you, there's not much about Malachi in that sense. Malachi is probably a contemporary of Nehemiah towards the end of the Old Testament, like we talked about a few weeks ago. He's probably, he's probably about 50 to 100 years after Zerubbabel. That's that character we looked at last time I spoke. What's the situation with Malachi? Well, the situation is this. The people of Israel have come back into the land. God brought, God brought them from their captivity in Babylon, brought them back into the land, had them recreate the temple. They probably either have finished the walls of Jerusalem or in the midst of doing the walls of Jerusalem. And they're already in spiritual decline. They're already going downhill spiritually. So the character lesson that you can least glean from Malachi is that no matter whatever else is going on, he was faithful to the Lord. That's the character lesson regarding Malachi. So let's start with the first verse in Malachi. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. One of the things I want to ask you as we read through this, we're going to see a lot of what I would call discussions going on through Malachi. Some might call them arguments. What's the difference between an argument and a discussion? Maybe discussion is a little more fair-minded. Maybe an argument is you got people who just want their own way. I know one guy said he and his wife never got into an argument. Never got into an argument. Husband and wife, can you believe that? Never got into an argument. John loves back to shake his head, not possible. 
He said they never got in an argument. They only had times of intense fellowship. <laughs> and I can relate to that. We've had times of intense fellowship, haven't we, honey? I'm sure we could all relate to that. What is this? Are these arguments? Are these times of intense fellowship? You're going to see a dialogue between God and Israel and, 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 and Israel's priests. The wonderful thing about when you get in a dialogue with God is you don't have to wonder who's on the right side of the point. Okay? We argue with each other because we think we got a fighting chance and I got all my facts lined up and let's go. Well, you know what? We shouldn't get in the habit of arguing with God. And that's what we're going to see here, what I think they were doing. I've titled it five different ways, discussions, arguments. I think it's closer to arguments. But you know what? When you're arguing with God, it ain't much of an argument. It's a closed discussion, really. So what are they doing here? They say, what way have you loved us, God? God is saying, I have loved you. And they're saying, but what way have you loved us? Those of you who know the Old Testament, does that sound kind of ironic? In what way has he loved you? And what way has he not loved you? He's talking to Israel. And he starts here at the very beginning. There was Jacob and Esau. And I had a choice to make. And I chose to love Jacob. Did you know love is a choice? God doesn't have to love you. If he had to love you, would it be love? If he had no choice. He chooses to love you. That's what love is about. It's a choice. He starts here at the beginning. And through the rest of the verses, up to verse 5, he describes how he chose Jacob over Esau. It says, Esau I've hated. And for those of you who think God had something against Esau personally, that's not what it's talking about there. What it's talking about is hate in comparison. I chose to love Jacob. Okay, I chose to bless Jacob. And Esau, by comparison, it looks like hate. Which of us deserves God's love? None of us. None of us do. The Bible teaches us that. God is gracious. It's his undeserved favor he shows towards us. He chooses to love us. So that's what he's telling them here. Wait a second. I chose you instead of Esau. And he did bless Esau when Jacob came back later and tried to give things to Esau. Esau says, no, I have enough. But he chose Israel over Edom. He brought them out of Egypt. And what way have you loved us? How about the miracles in Egypt? How about the Red Sea? How about all the way through the wilderness for 40 years? How about giving you all this land? How about bringing you back from captivity that he just did around 100 years ago. What's the problem? Israel's forgotten, haven't they? They've forgotten God's love. Can you relate to that? Do we forget sometimes? You know when I can take a... I appreciate thermometers. When I'm sick or my kids are sick, I've got a thermometer right next to me because I want to know what's going on. Are they getting better? Are they well? Is it going up and down? You want a nice thermometer if you're remembering God's love? Look at your attitude. Your response to situations. Where you're at with life right now. Oftentimes, that is a great measure of where you're at with God's love. If God has chosen you, it says in Ephesians 4, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer here this morning... God chose you because he, because he wanted to. It's his free choice. He chose to love you. He chose to save you. He chose to bring you to himself. Now, I won't steal any of the, the thunder from the Ephesians class um, that we'll be having in a couple of weeks. Go plug for the Ephesians class. But that's going to be one of the topics there. God chose us. He chose to love you. He chose to save you. What we can do is remember what he's done. He did choose me. He did save me. He has provided for me. The things I've needed in the past, how many times has God answered prayer? 
that, that, that horrible question that the disciples said to Jesus as they were going across the, the sea, and it was a fearful time, it was a frightful time. The waves were crashing, the boat was filling with water, and Jesus was asleep in the stern. And even though it's a fearful time, like, like what we go through today, is it still right to say as they said, Lord, don't you care? I'm going down. Don't you care? It isn't right, is it? We know that he cares. Isaiah 49, 14 says this. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. And this is the Lord's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget yet I will not forget you. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Did you know that that's a symbol? That's a symbol for Jesus in, in sign language? You do this. You say, that's Jesus. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The Lord doesn't forget the Lord loves us. He's inscribed us on the palms of his hands. Why? Because he's chosen to love us. And he's trying to show that to Israel here. So we're going to go on from there to the next verse. Again, you, you answer the question. Arguments or discussion? Looking at verse 6. A son, uh, chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You see the questions they keep asking? It's always, what? How? You ever have a discussion with someone like that? I haven't done anything wrong. You know the guy who probably has done everything wrong is the person who says, I haven't done anything wrong. That person's probably done everything wrong. Maybe it's because they've done nothing about the situation. They're arguing with God, aren't they? I think the Lord Jesus says, when it comes to arguing, this is a good methodology. To, 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 and I'm trying to apply this to my own life. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5.25. Agree with your adversary quickly. The one who's accusing you, agree with him quickly while you're on the way with him. Why? Listen to the consequences. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there so you have paid the last penny. Now, why do you pay the last penny? Because of stubbornness, isn't it? This pride. I'm going to argue. I'm going to battle. I'm not going to break. I'm not going to say you're right and I'm wrong. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's what they're doing here. And what way have we despised your name in verse 6? God says... What's, what's God's accusation? He says there's no honor. There's no reverence. There's no fear. Do we fear our fathers? We fear our parents? I know some, some people I've known, they, did, they, they weren't raised with the father. Oh boy, they had a mother. Sure made up for it. <laughs> More than made up for it. Okay. Do you, did you fear your parents? Well, I remember fearing my parents. I actually remember, consciously remember the day when my dad hollered, and that's what we say, that's what I say growing up, hollered, hollered my name from across the house, and I didn't jump. I was about 18, I think, by the time I didn't jump. I just went, casually went and saw what he wanted. But see, there's that fear, isn't there? That's my dad. That's my mom. We even tell the other kids we're growing up, you don't understand my dad. You, you don't know my mom. Right? There's a good fear there, right? That's your parents. They have an authority and a position over you. And they have power. Especially when you're little and they're big. Right? 
parents, fathers. How about bosses? Do you have fear for your boss? Do they have the power to fire? As they say in Australia, you get sacked. You get fired to let you go. And they have a place of authority. Why? Because God put them there. And there's, just, there's that sense of awe. I walk by the CEO's office and I have people with me. And I go, so that's, that's where the CEO sits. They go, oh, okay. There's a sense of reverence and awe. And rightly, we show these people honor. What does God say? He says, you show honor to parents, to fathers. Am I not a father? To bosses, to your masters. Am I not the master? Don't I have all the power and all the authority? God says, where is my honor? So they say, well, how are we not showing you honor? What we're going to see, it was two things. It was by what they were saying and by what they were doing. Good verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, and what way have we defiled you? By saying the Lord, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And down to verse 12. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And its fruit, its food is contemptible. And you also say, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. You know, I was reading this passage and it really, it really came home to me. You know what God cares about? He cares about this. Anybody know what that is? Anybody know who this is? Abby? Which people? Speak up, Beth. It's us people. Did you ever think about that? God is listening. He heard what these priests were saying. Ah, the Lord's table... All these dirty animals, and man, it's bloody. It says you sneer at it. It really means it literally means to blow air. (sighs) Boy, what a bother! So put out by this. God heard every word they said. He heard every word they said. I specifically recorded the general noise. I wasn't recording any of your conversations, but God is. He's listening. He cares. They were saying, what a pain we have to go through this again. You think God likes that? These are the priests who were supposed to be honoring God and bringing people to God. And they're saying, oh, what a bother. What a pain. What would happen to you if you said that enough times at your job? Ah, oh, it's a job. I can't stand it. I hate it. I don't bother. I always got to come in the morning and do work. What would your boss eventually do? He'd take you aside and say, you know, you don't really seem happy here. Do you think you need to move on? You'd get fired, wouldn't you? You see? Here is the priest. You're supposed to be bringing people, lifting up God's name before all the people and really all the nations you study the rest of the Malachites all the nations that are supposed to be bringing people to God and they're wandering away from God and they're stumbling the people and what were they doing it about? they're doing about the Lord's table about the altar <laughs> this blows me away God gave the altar to them to, so they would have a way to draw near to him They were the sinners who deserved to be judged, who deserved to go to hell for their sins. And God says, here, I'm going to give you an animal. This animal is dying in your place as a substitute. 
And if you trust me and you come with the blood sacrifice, I will forgive your sin. Wow. Every sin I've ever committed? Yep. Every sin. Because God was looking forward to what he would do one day. Every sin would be forgiven. You come by faith with the blood sacrifice, trusting God. Should this have been a low estimation? The Lord's table should have been low in their hearts. Of all people, no, not them. They lost their sensitivity to their own sin, to God's holiness, and his gracious way of allowing them to approach him. What you're going to see in Malachi is that the problem is, it's a heart problem. The priests were out of touch with God. I like the way Eric shared a devotional the other uh, night. Talked about how close you can be physically or maybe in the way towards the Lord, but how you can be off base still in many ways. And they were completely off base, even though they had that position. How else can you tell our hearts were not right? Let's read verse 8. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice... Is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 13, a second part there, it says, And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord what were they doing here? What were they giving to God? The leftovers. It was the trash. How do you like that stuffed animal, Christine? Nice pair of sweats, huh, Isla? It's torn. It's ripped up. They were giving to God exactly what David said he would never do. David said, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. They were given to God, certainly that which cost them nothing. Actually, it was even worse. It cost somebody else for the stolen property. And actually, that sick one would have cost them money to make it well first. Oh, I could spend some time and effort on this one to get it better. Ah, no, nah, we just give it to God. They'd given God the leftovers. They'd given God what they didn't want. They gave to God someone else's, not their own. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? How do we give to God? Our time, our effort, our money. Do we give to God the first part or what we can spare? God notices. What does he say here? He says, take that. Take that stuffed animal. Go take it to Arnold up there in Sacramento. Is that going to work for you? It's not, is it? Take that bad spreadsheet and take it to your boss. Take that program. Take it to your supervisor. That halfway done, little time, little effort put into it. Is that going to work for them? It's not. He's just Arnold. And who is God? Look at verse 11. This is some of the most memorable verses you're ever going to find in the Bible. You didn't know that they're in Malachi. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And every, every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And verse 14 but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Is God a great king? Throw so one more time. Is God a great king? Yeah. He is. He really is. The question we have to ask ourselves, are we treating him like it? I'll tell them myself a little bit, and, and, and maybe a few others. I hope I don't offend anybody. But we had a leadership meeting the other day. 
elders and deacons. And one of the brothers brought up the fact that, you know what, we have a table here to meet to. And we said we'd meet at a certain time. And you know what, if the governor was coming, or if the president was coming, you'd be here on time, wouldn't you? But the king of kings comes. The Lord of lords is here. And it hit me. And he said, we need to be on time. I said, I thought, you know what, brother, you're exactly right. We need to be on time. We need to be here. We need to treat him. If he is a great king, we need to treat him like one. He deserves the first part of the effort. You know what? He deserves the first part of the day. You know what Jesus did, it says? And the way it says it, it's, it's like Jesus did it every morning. He would go out and spend time with his father alone. They say breakfast is the most important part of the day. Well, I tell you, he had a different kind of breakfast, and it was the most important part of the day. Spending time with his father. The priests here had lowered their estimation of God and his table. Instead of bringing people closer, they were driving people away from God. Well, what's the Lord going to do about that? Uh, verse 10. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. The Lord is saying, I'd rather you shut the doors than do this. Than give me second best. Shut the doors. But no, no, none of them would do it. They wanted to go through the motions. I have no pleasure in you, he says there in verse 10. Says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. In chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. He says there, I have no pleasure in you. I'm not going to accept an offering from your hands. What happened to the priests? They got fired. They're as good as fired. He said, forget it. They've been let go. They did not lead the people in glorifying God's name. As I thought about this, I thought about and I've seen churches open and I've seen churches close. If God's servants will not give him the glory he deserves, you know what? He'll raise up others who will. He will. Do we give him the first part? Okay, going on from here, the next discussion verses 10 through 16 of chapter 2. Actually, this is two treacheries, two related treacheries that are challenged from Malachi. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. God made a deal with them. God made a deal with their fathers. What did he say? He said, look, if you will honor me, if you will love me. That's what God has always said from the beginning. What does the Lord require of you, Israel? That you love the Lord your God. How do you show that love? By doing what he says. And what is one of the things he said? He said, look, I'm going to give you the land. Don't intermarry with the unbelievers there. If you marry with them, they will drag your heart away from me. He made it very clear. So what did they do? They went in and what? Married the unbelievers. Okay. The most famous person to have done that is King, King Solomon. said he had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. <laughs> Sticky, still prickly. And what, these, what did these wives do? Most of them were from the, the unbelieving nations. 
and they drove, they dragged, they, they led his heart away. One of, the best, one of the best pieces of advice I think I've ever seen, that the, the biggest problem you can have about getting in a relationship with an unsaved person is you might fall in love with them. Your heart will be drawn to them and knitted to them. Solomon had done that. His heart, he felt, he was, he was off the charts. I don't know where he went. I, I honestly don't know where he went. He served pagan idols at the end of his life. And then what happened? The rest of the country followed suit. Both Judah and Israel ended up worshiping idols. Exactly what God told them not to do, they did it. And then what happened? God judged them. He brought Assyria, took away the ten northern tribes, and later the two southern tribes were taken away by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. For 70 years. Then God brought them back. God gave them a second chance. He, he, he moves the hearts of the pagan kings to say, Hey, why don't you go build the temple again? Yeah, build some walls too. Sounds great. Here, here's some money. Need anything else? That's the Lord. He gives them a second chance. So he gives them a second chance. They get back in the land. And what? They're intermarrying again with the, with the pagans. I can picture Malachi just pulling his hair out and going, what are we doing? This is why we got judged in the first place. We are destroying ourselves again. God is not going to accept, he's not going to accept an offering. We've profaned, we've made, we've, we've desecrated his temple. A guy offers an offering and then he goes home to an idolatrous worshiping spouse. And a child that speaks, doesn't even speak their own language. Well, that was then, and this is now. What about the New Testament? How does God feel? What does God say about his people marrying unbelievers today? Reading from 2 Corinthians 6, and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Has it changed? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What's the rhetorical question, rhetorical answer? None. None. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and he shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, from amongst the unsaved, amongst the world. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He says we have nothing to do with unbelievers. Where are they focused? Here and now. Where's the believer focused? On the Lord and being with Him. They're run by the ruler of this world. We have a new father. And we know this. We were in that world. And, the, and, and what Paul is saying and the Lord is saying to us today, it has nothing to do with each other. God has saved you and is changing you and bringing you to Himself. The two have nothing in common. The Lord is calling us to himself to trust him with, with if and who we're going to marry. He wants our love relationship with him to be the most important thing in life. And just like with Esau, his hatred by comparison, he wants our love to him to be so much that compared to, to, towards anything and everyone else, it's hatred. That's the kind of love relationship he wants with us. He should have first place. Let him lead and guide to another believer he wants us to spend the rest of our lives with. What's the second treachery here? Verse 13. Chapter 2. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? 
because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Do you see what's going on here? How there's two things being called out right now? It says you're marrying pagan wives. And what else are you doing? Getting divorced. Can you see the picture of what's going on here? They're coming into the land. And the older men. Well, I don't know what else to say it. They're looking for an upgrade. Isn't that basically what's going on here? They were turning in their old wives for new models. It's sad, isn't it? Is this right? Would you want God to do that with you? You know what? Paul, you're getting a little gray around the beard, and you know, I just can't use you anymore. I'm going to go find somebody else to love. You know what? Sorry, just can't use you. It's been fun. Bye. We hate that thought. God turning me in for an upgrade? That's exactly what they were doing here. What's God's point here? He's saying, look, pal, you made an agreement. I know. I was there when you made it. When you made that agreement with her, you made it in front of me and other witnesses. You and her have been through the best of times and the worst of times. You've been through having children and you've been through wandering children. You've been through finding jobs. You've been through losing jobs. You've been through deadly sickness and the best of health. She's been through thick and thin with you. Now, what are you doing? He says this, take heed to your spirit. How can I paraphrase that? What's in your heart, man? What are you thinking? How do you know heart? I gave her to you as one of the greatest gifts for life that I could ever give you. You stick with her. Just you and her. You raise children. Godly children. Who will know and follow me. You do anything else. You're looking for disaster. I don't think God's changed. I think God still feels the same way about divorce. I know the people have been through it. It says it covers one's garment with violence. What does that mean? People I've spoken to have been through divorce. They feel like their, their heart has been ripped apart. Their life has been ripped up. But that's the kind of violence God's talking about here. Yeah, there's good scriptural reasons for divorce, but it's not ideal. God hates divorce. Okay, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? (laughs) You getting tired of this attitude? (laughs) I am. (laughs) When God asks you this question, just start apologizing first and then get the facts later. Okay? Just agree quickly. What way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him. Or, where is the God of justice? Now sometimes, it is hard not to have these thoughts, isn't it? We know that God doesn't approve of evil, but we see wrong things happening. 
people who do wrong seem to flourish. And it bothers us, doesn't it? It bothers us. What's the Lord's answer to that? I think it's in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be swift against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. What's the Lord's answer? If you're wondering where he is, where is the God of justice, don't worry. He will be coming. He himself will come and set things straight. And where do you think he's going to start? Do you know where judgment begins? It begins in the house of God. It begins amongst his people, those who profess his name. He will come to his temple first and deal with his people first. Did this already happen? In a sense, it did. Matthew 11, verses 7 through 10. The messenger came first. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you so in malachi a messenger was to come right and that messenger was coming before who the lord yahweh jehovah the one true living god jesus says elijah excuse me jesus says john the baptist was that messenger And then who came after John the Baptist? Jesus. I won't read it now, but in John chapter 2, he comes to the temple and he cleanses it. He says, quit making this a marketplace. The disciples realized, they said, deal for thine houses, eating me up. And he did come to the temple suddenly. If Jehovah was to come after a messenger and John the Baptist was the messenger and Jesus came after, what does that mean? Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is God. If you ever want to know about the deity of Christ, right there in Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, John chapter 2. Did everyone's heart get prepared? Was John able to prepare everyone's heart? No. The hearts of the people were not ready for the Lord to come in judgment. Thankfully, the first time, that's not how he came. John did prepare some people. There were a few. There's always a remnant. You notice that? Read the Bible. You see around today. There's always a few that respond to God and his word. The question you need to ask yourself this morning is, we do that. Why is this happening? Why is that wrong? Why? Are you ready for that same judgment to be applied to you? Because to be honest, most of this, this, the standards we give to other people, we can't even live up to ourselves. But we're not talking about our standards. The Lord's going to come and judge. Are you ready for the Lord's judgment? Are you ready for when he comes back?
Okay, we have yet another discussion in verse, starting in verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You can see they're still trying to argue with God. They haven't learned anything. You ever robbed anyone? I have to confess, and I was, and kids, listen, this is a bad example not to do. When I was little, I was at a grocery store, and I took a candy bar, and I knew I was stealing it, probably about 10, and I knew it was wrong, and I shouldn't have done it. I robbed. Have you ever robbed anyone? Taken something that was theirs, you knew it was wrong, you took it? Can you imagine robbing God? It's an incredulous question here in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yeah, you can rob God. God had commanded that they give of the tithes and the offerings that his house be taken care of and those who minister in the house be taken care of. And they weren't doing it. This is probably why the priests were being partial in the law. They were probably getting kickbacks from those who actually did give something. This is, as you see in verse 7, this is what God equates to wandering off. We take that money and we go, no, I, I, I'm going to need that. Right? God tells him, it wasn't just your brethren you were mistreating, it was me. You weren't keeping money back from the priests, you were robbing me. What's his solution in verse 10? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. What's he saying here? You see, you've got it all backwards. The more you keep, the more you're going to be cursed. He says it earlier, you're cursed. Forget it. See, we think, if I save up and I keep it all, then I'll have more. And that's true in, in, in the flesh and in the world, but in spiritual things, it's exactly the opposite. The more you give, the more God blesses. Do you think you can outgive God? I like the illustration. You have a shovel and you say, here God, we got a whole bunch of dirt out here. Plenty, we get plenty of shovel, plenty of dirt. But imagine it was, it was something you want to give to God. Time, money, anything, effort. You take it and you give it to God. And before you're done doing that, what comes flying back at you? More than you gave. You can't outgive them. He says, bring it in. And I'm going to give to you such a blessing. You're not going to be able to take it all in. Now, some might be thinking, well, Charlie, did we just change channels? Are we on the health and wealth gospel channel now or something? No, I'm telling you, a spiritual principle. And it's true in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was more physical uh, blessing. And in the New Testament, it's more spiritual blessing. But you know what? I was young, and I'm getting a little bit older. And I've, I've never seen God forsake the righteous, nor the Son of Man begging bread. I've always seen him taken care of. I can tell you the stories. Most, a lot of you already know my story, how the Lord's taken care of me. The more you give to God, the more he gives back. He wants that relationship, not one of selfishness in me, but one of you, Lord, and you first. And I'm going to trust you. I don't know how I'm going to do what i got to do later, but I'm going to give you this now. You're not going to outgive God. He's going to bless you. So much so, as it says here, you're not going to be able to take it all in. I think in heaven, we'll start to be able to take it all in. This reminds you of a New Testament verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Put God first. It's all over the Bible. The prophet told the woman, she said, I only got this much food we're left and then we're going to eat that and we're going to die. He says, make me something first. <laughs> wow! 
that sounds selfish. He was testing your faith. You put God first in something, not the leftovers, not the ratty old stuffed animal or the tore up old sweats, the good stuff. Put God first and then watch him bless you. And all these other things will be added unto you. Nothing to worry about. You know what? God doesn't need your gift. You know who needs your gift? You do. God, you need your gift. God doesn't need God owns, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the gold and silver is his. He just speaks it all into existence. But for the benefit of our relationship to him, we need that gift. We need to give to him like that. So we get into that relationship with him that he's always wanted. And it's the best for us. Okay, it's our last little discussion. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, get, I think they're arguments personally, but beginning in verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? And we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. What's their complaint here? And God takes it. You see what he says here? You've been harsh against me. You've been harsh against someone? What does that mean? It means you said something and it hurt them. It really hurt them. God said, you hurt me with your words. That's what they're saying here. Ah, what good is it to serve God? I mean, look at it. The wicked. You succeed. The proud are blessed. And even those who tempt God are never caught, never punished. Are all these things true? Do the wicked succeed? I'm going to tell you right now. The who's who of the rich and famous are full of godless people. Those who revile God, take his name in vain, shake their fists at him, are they punished? No, they're not. It's true every day. We see it every day. What's God's answer to this? You know, this is one of the most gracious answers. I love this passage. Look at verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his, his own son who serves him. How does the Lord answer here? He says this. The answer is not what we see today. The answer is, is what God sees today. It's in what, and what God is going to do later. God sees his people loving him. He sees his people loving each other and encouraging one another. And that means so much to him. He's writing it down. We have something like this today. It's a book of remembrance. It's what God's doing. Everything that his people do when they talk to, talk to one another, encourage one another. It's a book of remembrance. It's a scrapbook. He's having, it says it's written before him. He's having an angel write down what the believers say to one another. When they encourage one another. When they walk with the Lord. Why? Why does God write a scrapbook? There's only one reason you write a scrapbook. A book of remembrance. Oh, by the way, the word scrap's not doing it justice right now. These are treasures to God. Why is God writing a book of remembrance? There's only one reason. 
He wants to go over it later. Isn't that why we have books of remembrance? We're like going over them, looking at the kids, laughing, crying, appreciating. God's writing down everything. And he says, we're going to go over it. On the day I make you my jewels. Jewels. That's what you are to God. You're his jewel. It's a precious stone. We keep those diamonds close, don't we, ladies? Keep them there in the finger or the pearls hanging around the neck or locked away somewhere or somewhere we can can't. They're not hanging out there with the dog kennel. You're my jewels. On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them. We're going to see who those who aren't spared. He says, I will spare them. He's looking forward to that day when we will be with him. And we go over these things. Then we'll see things the way we ought to see them. It's chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. All And the day which is, co- which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness. Who's that? Jesus. That's right. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What will happen to those who don't know the Lord? But Jesus is coming. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a guy up here with his suit on. Uh, I, I was in jeans and a t-shirt walking around here yesterday. The truth is just the same yesterday as it is today. Jesus is coming. It could be soon. It could be today. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you ready? It says here, Elijah's going to come first. And we know from the New Testament that that was John the Baptist, that he did come. And Jesus came. And John turned the hearts of the people, a remnant, a few, even only 11 out of 12 disciples who really trusted in Christ. The next time Jesus is coming, he's not coming back in a manger scene. There'll be no more mangers. That humble servant of the Lord will now be coming as a conquering king. If he is not your king now, he will not be your king then, only your judge. Make him your king. Return to him who created you, who died to save you. You know, at some point, this is the end of the Old Testament. It was too late for the Jews. Jesus came the first time. Most of them rejected him. And within a few years, Rome destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. And Jews were scattered. You have the chance right now to know Jesus. Don't wait. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to thank you. Thank you, Lord, for how gracious you are. Think of your incredible patience. Here Israel was again uh, in the same old sins. Just like us, Lord, back in the same old sins that we've stumbled into. And yet, Lord, you didn't cast them away. You didn't throw them away. You appealed with them. You reasoned with them to come to you. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who don't know you, that they would realize the the truth, the reality, that if they're not born again, they have not come into that saving relationship with you, that they need to do it soon, before it's too late. They need to do it today. Lord, you say, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray you'd drive that home for them. And Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have a book of remembrance. Lord, help us to look at things the way you do. To honor you, to glorify you, to lift your name up, and to see others drawn to you, to trust you, to give to you in a way that brings you glory, that honors your name. We thank you. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.